listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. We're Jessica and Caroline, and we'll be your hosts today. In this episode, Tom speaks with Mara Marino, CEO of Education Forward DC. Before helping launch Education Forward DC, Mara held a number of positions at New School Venture Fund, where she worked for eight years. There, she learned a lot about the national picture and how trends around entrepreneurship and scaling success looked in public education. She was able to see up close organizations that were making huge changes in education. For a little background, for the last 20 years, New School's Venture Fund has really been the epicenter of education entrepreneurship. Originally founded by Kim Smith, New Schools really took the idea of designing and incubating New School models to the next level. Since leaving New Schools, Mara started up Education Forward DC to help support visionary leaders in the city who are working to ensure that all students have equitable access to excellent public education. In their conversation, Tom and Mara talk about education, studying at Stanford University, Harvard Business School, and Teacher College of Columbia University, as well as her prior careers teaching at East Palo Alto and working with new schools. She discusses the work and progress made at new schools, her work and mission with Education Forward DC, and their work with Education Cities and Harbor Master organizations. Let's listen in. Laura Marino, welcome to the Getting Smart podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. I hear you grew up in New Jersey. I did, Bernardsville, New Jersey. And this is sort of rural New Jersey, bucolic, where everybody's parents went to college. Is that about right? That's that's about right. They They named New Jersey the Garden State because of the county I grew up in. And you could see New York City out the window of one of the classrooms at my high school. It's only about 30 miles as the crow flies to New York City. But it's a uh, farming country and uh, generally pretty rural. And you went to a pretty traditional high school? Yeah, my high school, uh, Bernard's High, was the high school for uh, about six towns um, in the area. And my graduating class had 115 kids in it. So it was very small for being public school. Um, but it was a pretty, pretty traditional, you know, seven periods a day of 42 minute classes and uh, and that thing, it was it was uh, pretty traditional in that sense. Um, how did you get to Stanford? That's a great question. Um, I think mostly because I was bratty as a teenager and ready to get out of my house. So I used to threaten my parents that I was going to move to California. And I wasn't really that serious. Um, and one day they said to me, well, if you're really serious about college in California, we should go look. And I heard that as a free trip to California. And that sounded pretty awesome. So um, my mom and I went to look at Stanford and I, I fell in love with it. Uh, I think the palm trees right. had a lot to do with it. Yes, and... they do. Well, you pull up on that <laughs> campus and you go, wow, I could imagine like going to school here. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like that would be a good place to hang out for a few years. And uh, so I ended up deciding to apply early decision and I never thought that would happen. And it, it did. And so all of a sudden I was off to California. So you taught... High school after college, where was that? I taught in East Palo Alto, uh, which is in California. Uh, and East Palo Alto is a lot different than West Palo Alto, right? <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, it's about a couple miles maybe from campus. And when right. uh, when Stanford started, uh, Jane Stanford prohibited the sale of alcohol within uh, a certain radius of campus. And so a neighborhood called Whiskey Gulch popped up. 
um, right on the outskirts of that border. And that ended up becoming East Palo Alto. Um, and so it was the named the murder capital of America in the early 90s. It's a very small community, but there were more murders per capita there. Uh, I think it was 1992 um, than anywhere else in the country, um, largely because it was the center of uh, the drug trade in the Bay Area at the time. So it's less about the people living in the community and more about the people coming in and out of the community. And their only high school, uh, only public high school closed in 1976 because of desegregation. Uh, so kids were being bussed out, but somehow the other kids in the Silicon Valley were never getting on that bus to come back uh, to East Palo Alto. So eventually they closed the public high school and um, a group at Aspire Public Schools and the Stanford School of Ed teamed up to open a high school to be a, a college prep option um, in the community. So I ended up uh, volunteering there as a senior in college and writing my thesis about the startup of the school because that was their first year. That right. What was it called? Uh, East Palo Alto High School. Now it's called East right. Palo Alto Academy. I've been there several times. Yeah. Um, tough. I, I remember you visiting my, my class, Tom. No kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were there. I taught 12th grade government mostly. So. Uh, wow. Yeah. I hope you don't remember because I wasn't that great a teacher. So <laughs> it's better that you don't that you don't know. But you uh, you saw me teach. That's amazing. So how so so you got a master's at Columbia, and then how and why Harvard Business School? <laughs> yeah. So um, you know because I felt like I was learning how to teach on the fly, I went straight from undergrad into the classroom. Um, I was took classes in the summer towards my master's at Columbia. And ed school was a ton of fun, but it wasn't making me a better teacher. Uh, and so I, I was excited by what we were doing at our school. It was a very progressive project-based approach. And um, I figured other people must know how to do this right. Like we must have been doing something wrong that it was so hard. And so uh, I started visiting schools around the country and realizing we were actually uh, sort of ahead of the game and Aspire was really um, on the on the cutting edge in a lot of ways. And so um, I wanted to learn something about how you take ideas to scale. And since ed school wasn't giving me those answers, I thought maybe business school would. So I uh, applied to Harvard and was lucky enough to to get in and get to go. Was that a good experience? Uh, it was a really mixed experience. I'm, I'm really grateful for the people I met and the things I learned there. Um, I got to take Stacy Childress's class, which was incredible. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. So that was great. Stacy and I wrote a case together while I was there. Um, so in that sense, it was a great experience. Um, and I have friends that, uh, are, I'm still very, very close with. Um, but it was culture shock going from teaching in East Palo Alto to a classroom at Harvard Business School. And so, Cambridge, right. Yeah, there are uh, institutions driven by very different values. And um, I remember downloading my midterm, uh, the first term, first semester, and the cover page said Quaker something. And I was waiting for it to download. And I thought we were going to do a case about the Quakers. And I was so excited. And then, of course, they finished loading and it said Quaker State Oil. And I thought that that kind of encapsulates my business school experience. I was uh, sort of always on a on a different page in terms of what we were going to be talking about and focusing on. But I, it made me um, 
you know, much sharper um, in my thinking. And I, I got a ton out of it skill wise because it was all brand new to me. So you held a number of different positions at uh, New School Venture Fund. Yeah. That must have been a, a great developmental experience, right? Yeah, it was. It was a, a great place to learn with um, really smart colleagues. Um, I came there out of business school. I got a fellowship from uh, Harvard Business School from the Social Enterprise Initiative to spend a year at new schools. And, and I really thought of that as my third year of my MBA because so much of what I learned in business school, I couldn't figure out exactly how it was going to apply on the stuff I really cared about in education. And so I was thought I would go work for a school district or a CMO, but I wanted to take a year and see the national picture and um, get a much better understanding of um, how these trends around entrepreneurship and um, scaling success, like what that actually looked like in public education. Um, so I was fortunate enough to get to go to new schools. And then um, after a year, I was really hooked and loving the work I was doing and loving the chance to see folks up close who were building organizations that were making huge change. So uh, I ended up there for eight years. For our listeners that don't know, um, for most of the last 20 years, the New School Venture Fund has really been the epicenter of education entrepreneurship. It was founded by Kim Smith. It, it really took the idea of incubating, of designing and incubating new school models to, um, you know, a, a, a new art. It, uh, it, it touched many of the um, brand name charter school networks today. And, uh, and then with Joanne Weiss launched a, an EdTech fund. And so just in many ways, um, spearheaded not only uh, the idea of venture philanthropy, but more broadly, the, the entire sector of, of education entrepreneurship and all really during the years that you were there. Yeah, I mean, the, the work uh, that Kim Smith and John Doran, Brooke Byers and others did in the early days, it was incredibly visionary. Um, and I think about, you know, the way that the new schools team got together with Don Shelby and and uh, thought about the notion of a charter management organization, the way they thought about right. entrepreneurship as you know a lonely pursuit and the need to really speed up everybody's learning by helping folks collaborate and and share their mistakes and um, you know the the thought to have the new school summit, which now is you know a big event, but started with fifty people in a room kind of sharing their problems. Um, I think that was, uh, it's incredible to think that, that that's the page that right. came was on and 20 years ago. In those uh, early days and Jim Shelton and then Shiva Malik Shah joined and really did important pioneering work there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, um, the new schools alumni, uh, it's an exciting group to track. They're getting ready to celebrate their 20th anniversary this year. And so uh, they started to talk about, you know, where folks are now and, you know, Beth Rabbit is heading the Learning Accelerator, and Kara Delzer has started a, a for-profit startup uh, outside education. But folks are just doing incredibly interesting and different things. And you know, obviously, the work that Jim and Joanne did at the U.S. Department of Education, and then later Ted Mitchell and Jonathan Shore joined them. So uh, it's really amazing where folks have gone from there. It, it was about. Ten years ago, that new schools made a, a significant commitment to Washington D.C. 
and uh, it, you, you were heavily involved in that work. And then about two years ago, you launched a new organization to uh, to take that work forward. It's called Education Forward DC. You're now in your second year. Is that about right? Yeah. Yeah. We'll celebrate our second anniversary this summer. And what's the mission? The mission is to support visionary leaders in the city who are working to ensure that all students have equitable access to an excellent public education. Um, so we're, we're really looking for folks who are leading schools, who are leading advocacy efforts, human capital efforts, public engagement efforts um, that are all focused on how we make this city really work for all the kids who are in it. You join another, uh, a couple dozen groups around the country that are part of the Education Cities uh, organization. Some people call them quarterback organizations, some harbor master um, I, I would call them a kind of a learning ecosystem leader. So th- there, there was a bit of a template that was in place. Would would you say that your work really builds on on any cities in particular? Yeah, I, I think it does. I think you know we were fortunate to be doing the work inside of New Schools starting about ten years ago, right around the time that New Schools for New Orleans got started. So. Um, our work internally at new schools in D.C., but also in Boston uh, and in Oakland um, was certainly influenced by the early days of new schools for New Orleans and this idea that you could have a nonprofit organization um, really bringing folks together around a vision for a very different set of outcomes in public education. Um, so we've learned a ton from them, but but now that work has really grown and I think Ed Cities has maybe 30 members around the country. So um, we're learning from folks in Denver and Indianapolis. We hosted a group from Atlanta this week. We were down in San Antonio a few weeks ago. So um, the network is uh, incredibly helpful in just making sure that we make our own new mistakes and we don't repeat the mistakes somebody else has has already made and learned from. So it's been great. When we think about the the rise of uh, and a general improvement of education in Washington, D.C., new school development has been has played an important role. It's benefited from some philanthropic grants and from a great uh, NGLC partner um, in, in City Bridge. Do you see new school development remaining an important part of the, you know, creating a healthy ecosystem in D.C.? Yeah, I, I certainly do. It's at the core of our work. Um, you know, I think that in D.C., the charter school law here is about 20 years old. And um, I think the charter schools uh, did an incredible job in their early years of trying some new and different models and proving that it was possible to get a very different set of results um, for kids. And so that um, uh, that proof point and also the pressure that it put on the system from an enrollment perspective um, after years of declining enrollment at D.C. public schools um, became a catalyst for change on the public school board and then eventually the dissolution of that school board and the creation of mayoral control. Um, so I, I think the new school development in maybe the first 10 years of the charter sector was really important in that sense. Um since mayoral control, the progress has been pretty incredible. And, and certainly there are lots of questions being asked right now about some of that work. Um, 
but it, there's no question that it's a very different city today than it was 10 years ago. It, it used to be that DCPS struggled to open schools on time. There was very little data about uh, how things were going in charter schools or in DCPS. There was no yardstick for performance. Uh, we had major special ed lawsuits. I mean, the story of, fortunately, lots of urban cities was, was really true in D.C., and uh, we still have a ways to go to get better, but um, uh, you know, DC has been the fastest improving on NAEP. Uh, we're seeing DC CAS scores and now Park scores uh, rise every year, um, and we have an incredible set of options in the city because of the way the new school development work has progressed. So we have Montessori schools, we have language immersion schools for Mandarin, French, Spanish, Hebrew. Uh, there's folks working on an Arabic school now. Um, there are project-based schools. Um, it's, you know, a number of expeditionary learning schools. Um, so the the set of options for parents is very, very different um, than it was. And uh, I think that will continue both at DCPS. They've recently launched um, an effort called the Principal's Lab to try to support innovation inside the district. Um, and then in the charter sector, we continue to see a really a strong pipeline of folks who are coming up with new ideas for how to serve kids better. So we're excited about that. DC has um, been successful in in part, um, certainly because of New School Venture Fund and and others, but um, it's had a, a particularly effective charter school authorizer there. Um, I assume you think they're an important part of the success story? Absolutely. I think um, the D.C. Public Charter School Board is our authorizer. And uh, right now it's the only authorizer in the city and they're independent of the school district. And that makes a huge difference in having a um, objective voice who's thinking about the quality of uh, specific charter applications and, and deciding whether to greenlight those and holding a really high bar for what it takes to open a school here and be entrusted with public resources that way. And then also uh, on the closure side to setting a bar for what the standards should be to serve students well and, and holding to that and closing schools when it needs to happen. So um, they've been really amazing and I think are a huge part of why the charter sector here is so high quality. Uh, what about school improvement? Uh, is that an important part of your agenda? It's not, uh, we're, we're really focused much more on a school creation strategy than a school improvement strategy. Um, DCPS has done incredible work in strengthening its human capital um, through the impact evaluation system, through LEAP, which is their professional development program. Um, the charters have also um, uh, really focused on teacher and leadership support uh, in recent years. So we've decided our value add is much more in supporting new schools to get opened and then ensuring that that human capital pipeline continues to be strong. But we're not doing a lot of direct work in schools uh, around improvement. What is, um, what's your relationship like with the district now? Are they uh, a partner in, um, in the work? What, what's What's the relationship like? Yeah, the relationship is pretty close. They're they're definitely a partner in the work. Um, we have a new interim chancellor now, Dr. Amanda Alexander, who had been the 
head of elementary schools for the district and a partner of ours for a long time. Uh, we actually just developed with her a project with the Relay Graduate School of Education to support trauma-informed instructional practices in both uh, DCPS schools and in charter schools. So we're really excited about that. Um, so we see our mission as one that's about all the kids in the city, and that means working with everybody who's uh, who's in the system. And um, and so that means talking to folks at DCPS pretty pretty regularly and getting their input on where the the best uh, places are for us to invest our resources. So uh, DC has had um, much publicized recent challenges, but uh, those aside, do, do you have the sense that that these ecosystem leaders, these quarterback uh, organizations, can really help to uh, to bring sustainability to a, a, an urban innovation and improvement agenda? Can they be part of the the bridge that um, that keeps things together in a city when when the uh, uh, the district might be undergoing uh, change? Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, looking at D.C., but also looking at uh, some of our peers across the country, I think that um, there's a role for an organization to help bring folks together, not just, you know, DCPS schools and charter schools, but also business leaders, civic leaders, philanthropists, uh, government leaders. Um, Sometimes folks are all trying to solve the same problem, but they're not talking to each other a lot about how they're uh, trying to solve it. So we certainly try to play that role in in leading folks towards um, a set of ideas that we think will really make a big difference for students. So right now, for example, we're very focused on special education um, and uh, how folks can better use the resources we have to, to improve our special education performance. Um, but I also think that in times of change and transition like this, um, we can be a, a bit of a buffer and, you know, remind people that, um, uh, yes, there are changes, but we're still all working towards the same thing. And, and, you know, unfortunately, uh, the work of education is political work. So there will be leadership changes at time. Uh, and, uh, we have to kind of remind people to, to keep moving forward, um, during those changes. So I think that quarterback organizations are, um, even more important in these times of transition. We just finished a, a book on school networks, and the premise is that uh, personalized learning is really um, promising, but it's still really challenging. Just the, the tool set's not quite ready. Um, developing human capital is uh, is a challenge, and so the our conclusion was that. Um, Schools often benefit from working together with other like-minded schools, it, it, either in a in a, a loose sort of a network uh, or in a, a voluntary network. You mentioned um, expeditionary learning as an example of that, or or in a managed network like a, a charter management organization. That these networks uh, are likely to be part of the uh, solution set for creating and improving. Uh, schools going forward. Any of that resonate with your work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, number one, I think uh, I agree with you that 
that personalization is incredibly important and also really nascent. And we struggle with that as a local organization, um, thinking about what role can we play in softening the ground for innovation here and really pushing some of the folks who are developing new schools to think outside of the constraints that they have today. Um, And uh, I think it's hard to ask folks to both be excellent on imagining a school design that they've never seen before and executing it uh, with incredible fidelity. And uh, so I think we need to be patient in supporting those folks um, who are, who are really on the forefront of trying to do that work, but it does feel like the work is um, slower now than we want it to be. So we're thinking hard about how to push that forward. Um, In terms of the piece about the learning networks, we saw that when DC adopted the common core standards a few years ago And folks really struggled uh, in terms of what that shift looked like. Um, They they were quick to sort of say, okay, we've uh, aligned our curriculum to the Common Core and and now we're ready to go. Um, It was much harder to think about the adaptive shifts that it was going to take, especially because so many of the principals had never taught when the Common Core standards were in place. And so they're now leading other adults in doing that work. So we ended up building a network um, and working with Unbound Ed to, to get about 30, 35 or so principals and chief academic officers together every month, visiting each other's schools um, and looking at very specific areas of teacher practice to just figure out how to get better and how to take that back to their school uh, and help folks see what the new bar really looked like. So I, I think that um, for us uh, and for the folks who were involved in that network, I think it was a really powerful learning experience. And we're thinking about how that applies now in personalization because folks today are doing pretty disparate work, um, mostly bringing digital content into their classrooms or into uh, intervention uh, of some kind. Um, But we want to help them learn a little bit faster together. So we're thinking about what role we might play to, to do that. Thanks for being on the Getting Smart podcast. A big thanks to Mara for talking with Tom and for the work her team is doing at Education Forward DC. And thank you listeners for tuning into the podcast today. If you haven't, please hit subscribe and leave us a rating. It helps us get better and makes it easier for your friends to find us. Lastly, for more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica and Caroline signing off.